Welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm Curtis Lockhart. On each episode, we invite a leading expert to discuss key trends in global development and the world of cities, including the role charter cities and innovative governance will play in humanity's new urban age. For more information, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Mason, Research Manager at the Charter Cities Institute. Joining me on the podcast today is Joseph McKinney, CEO of the Catawba Digital Economic Zone, a new special economic zone established by the Carolinas-based Catawba Nation, focused on fintech, digital assets, and advancing the 21st century digital economy. We discuss the economic and philosophical objectives of the Catawba DEZ, its unique legal and regulatory frameworks, and how the zone is integrated into tribal governance and more. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Yeah, pleasure to be on. So before we get into discussing what the Catawba Digital Economic Zone, what it is, what it's going to do, how that project came about, tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be the CEO of a digital economic zone. For sure. So I started out, you know, in college, you know, in poli-sci philosophy and just like a lot of people in university, like really caring about wanting to make a positive impact in the world and, you know, seeing all these theories and want to make them a reality. And I thought like many others that the best way to do that was to go to law school and become a politician. But the more I went down that path working, you know, in, in think tanks and local races and what have you, I realized quickly that for one, that probably wasn't going to be the best way to make impact. And secondly, I would be absolutely miserable doing so. <laughs> uh, at the same time, I realized that there's a lot of impact from, you know, for-profit or at least non-governmental angles. Like, uh, you know, Arab Spring was 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 really kicking off and that was instigated by Twitter, you know, and, and Uber and Airbnb were making their own impacts in the world. And around that time, I, you know, became, Bitcoin was becoming more and more nascent. So at that point, I realized, well, instead of simply arguing or trying to vote in one direction, why don't we actually start to build an alternative and demonstrate an idea and then let that scale from there. And other people can try to scale it and, and improve upon it. So after college, started working on a microfinance startup dealing with cryptocurrencies. And my co-founder at the time, you know, we, we got really interested in, in zones and special jurisdictions. And we noticed that there was all these sorts of projects all around the world especially really innovative ones. And, uh, but the problem was they kept making the same exact mistakes and they weren't really connected with one another, didn't really know each other. So we formed an organization that would connect them all together called the Startup Society Foundation, now Startup Society's Network. And we worked on that for quite a number of years, um, known for our trade show conferences, our academic journal, our how-to guide book, and digital tools that we provided and in parallel to that, I was doing some for-profit consulting. And in the process of doing that, um, one of the people that had Startup Society's uh, research arm, the Institute for Competitive Governance, Tom W. Bell, he, uh, someone was reading his book about U.S. Special Economic Zones. And uh, it turns out that that was a member of the tribe Special Economic Zone team. And he was asking them, you know, how to make a U.S. Special Economic Zone. And Tom, at the time, didn't have much time to commit to it. But he forwarded it to me because of I had been consulting on some projects of combining special economic zones with opportunity zones and enterprise zones and what we call uh, stack zones. 
And uh, so when it was forwarded to me, I like a lot of people in the United States thought that this is probably very silly. Native Americans are paper tigers. They don't have really any real authority. History is, is the judge of that. But the more I actually dig into the research, I found out the exact opposite is true, that Native Americans and tribal governments have at least the same authority as U.S. states and sometimes even more. The problem is the reason why they haven't had full-on jurisdictions, that they've done these one-off opportunities with jurisdictional arbitrage, whether that's gaming or, or, or cannabis or payday lending, is because they didn't have a full jurisdiction. The reason they didn't make on a full-on jurisdiction is they didn't have the, the, the capital and they didn't have the structure. And because of that, they weren't able to bring in proper partners to bring that into reality. But I quickly realized that a special economic zone is precisely the type of structure that's necessary to get on a holistic jurisdiction for businesses off the ground in Indian country. So started getting very excited. And uh, I personally moved down to South Carolina slash North Carolina, the Carolinas, after we got an MOU from the tribe's business arm. And we started working directly with the tribe's government and as well as their business arm attorneys. And we started working with them on the precise legislative package that we would you know, try to implement together with the nation. And that would consist of a commercial code, regulatory body, and a for-profit managing arm. And uh, after we developed, and in parallel to developing this legislative package with the attorneys, we did the most important work. And the work that I'm actually most proud of out of this project is the community engagement, meaning community elders, you know, which really means meeting them in person, breaking bread, like going to Golden Corral two times a week and having printouts of the materials and talking to people in depth about it, you know, building friendships, going door to door, sending printed materials to houses, having signs. Essentially, the outcome was, as far as I can tell, one of the first grassroots movements for a special economic zone. And not only that, but within the United States, And as a consequence of that, we were able to secure a special session in February 19th for a vote by the general council, which according to the Catawba's constitution and a lot of tribal governments in Indian country, that essentially means all voting age Catawbans. And uh, so there was a vote on February 19th. And after initial questions, it was voted in landstorm. So it was uh, 99 to 33, I believe. I have it right in front of me. Yeah. So huge popular support. And yeah, it is now law. Very cool. Thank you for the overview. And and there's a lot of stuff in your answer there that that we're going to get into in some more detail later. But let's let's first start with, so I think a lot of people are are probably familiar with special economic zones or, you know, you say that phrase and and maybe they think of something that kind of looks like an industrial park or or maybe it's at a port or something. So what is a digital economic zone? Good question. So yeah, like, oftentimes when people think of SEZs, they think of fiscal incentives, they think of ports and, and physical infrastructure, and that makes a lot of sense. And that's been the vast majority of them. But a lot of listeners on this podcast understand that special economic zones have been moving more into general business environment, into regulations, and in some cases, even you know commercial codes. Um, and that's the case of a, of a digital economic zone. It's, it's, it's providing that good business environment, legal and regulatory framework, even if you aren't physically domiciled there. I mean, there's plenty of examples of this, like the Dubai International Financial Center. Well, not plenty, but they exist. You know, a a lot of different Zetas. And the difference is simply just removing or at least 
deprioritizing the physical element of these zones. And it's very simple. It's, it's not a absurd concept. It's, it's used all the time. I mean, Estonia is often heard example, but in the United States, the most important example, of this is Delaware. The vast majority in the Silicon Valley have never set foot in Wilmington, yet almost every single company that's on Sand Hill Road is a Delaware company. People use a legal framework or a jurisdictional framework of places that they've never been all the time. You just don't think about it. But this is the first example that it's done in Indian country, and it's one of the few examples done through especially economics. Right. So you said a lot of these companies, normally they go to Delaware, that that's kind of the model, or maybe they just say, you know, that's not that important to us. We'll, we'll just incorporate it in, in California or Texas or wherever else. So what are the actual legal regulatory advantages that this zone is offering that, that some other jurisdictions that also or that elsewhere in the U.S. aren't? aren't really available? What's the advantage? So at the very baseline, and some of your users might actually be used, used to this term, so I can actually use it. Our commercial code is based off of ULEX, which is a collection of best practice inspired and template laws from Uniform Law Commission, the American Bar Association, and American Legal Institute. So rather than having a commercial code that's riddled with special interest laws and laws that have existed for 100 years that are no longer relevant, we have this really clean commercial code that's essentially built by lawyer monks that convene at conferences every couple of years and and debate how many angels are in the pen of a perfected security interest and really get into the nitty-gritty of you know legal matters. And so that's our basic commercial code. So we have that advantage at bare minimum. Number two, it's the structure. So a lot of regulatory bodies and legislators in the United States and around the world, they're slow. They have a bunch of different priorities. They have a bunch of special interests. And in fields, especially in exponential technologies and frontier tech, they are slow and usually not really good at creating a legal and regulatory framework around it. With the code that we have, essentially, we have, a, in reality, there's a five-person commission that is responsible for implementing regulations. So, by the time that, let's say, Wyoming, which meets like twice a year, is able to talk in committee about a certain amendment that they want to their, their commercial code or to their, you know, their DAO regulatory framework, by the time that they go for recess during the live stream, we could already be proposing it to the zone authority and they could implement it you know, in short order before it's even introduced to their legislature. So speed is a really huge component to that. But also having that, that for-profit sort of aspect of it incentivizes business friendliness and and ensuring going quickly to market in an effective manner. And as you and a lot of your colleagues and people and listeners of the show know, for-profit special economic zones have an advantage because they have to cater to their customers, move quickly and provide the best experience. So with all those structural things and at that baseline level of having that commercial code, we are the best jurisdiction for digital assets and registering remotely. And beyond that, just knowing the docket of regulations that we have going for digital assets, um, just a couple of days ago, we passed the holistic legal framework for integrating digital assets under existing law. And uh, so that is you know, one of the few jurisdictions in the world that you know, classifies and regulates digital assets under existing code. And it's the first jurisdiction in the world to have a very clear definition of what a non-fungible token is. Okay, very interesting. And so within this kind of legal framework that you're sort of in the process of building, how much of this is standing sort of in place of, right, so this, this, the tribe is based in, in South Carolina, how much of this is sort of replacing 
or, or standing in for South Carolina law? How much is standing in place of federal law? Like what's, what, what, is, what is actually the target in terms of the improved regulatory environment? So here is the structure of Indian law in the United States. Unless tribes have voluntarily relinquished a sovereign right or capacity, or if Congress has removed that, it very explicitly removed that right from the tribes, they are thought to retain. They do retain it. In the case of having your own commercial code and you know having your own regulatory codes for regulating businesses within their jurisdiction, the Catawba firmly have that. So in terms of everything that's relevant towards the zone, South Carolina and North Carolina law don't apply. And to be clear, we do have properties both in North and South Carolina. And in fact, companies that will be registered within the zone will have a North Carolina address. Most of that is for for tax purposes because there's no tax treaty with North Carolina and the tribe. And there is in South Carolina. But in either case, both have firm authority to create their own commercial code, regulatory code, et cetera. Okay. Yeah, that's very interesting because it's always been, I think, really striking to me. There's this sort of almost paradoxical situation, I think, with regard to tribal governance where Right, there's significant sovereignty and, and self-government over some areas, but then in other places, there's this sort of very intrusive and, and sort of paternalistic federal regulation. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's interesting how how I think this zone is is kind of striking out sort of a, a middle ground in there and sort of feeling out where the opportunities are in, in a way where you know you, you don't you don't have to go back to say the Bureau of Indian Affairs to get you know every little thing done that you need done. Exactly. That's the those are the big facets that that. Indian countries had difficulties with in the past that this that this zone doesn't have to deal with as much or at all. I mean, like like you mentioned with the BIA, the biggest things that the tribe has to go back to is often with land. It's not as burdensome as you would might have to think, but you can't have, for instance, you can't have leaseholds that are longer than 25 years without a BIA uh, you know process to, to to go longer than that. And with criminal law, there there's some back and forth, but everything within our code right here is civil law and and economic regulations. So that's not a problem. So that's that's kind of why a digital economic zone is just the best fit for Indian law and in for Indian country. Right. So how does the tribe actually benefit from from the zone? Is there a revenue stream that goes to the tribe? How how is that sort of relationship structured? So the the entity that manages and finances and provides the services and software to run the zone that isn't as a for profit entity that's majority owned by the Catawba and they are have a majority on that board and uh, the zone authority is completely owned and in fact is a part of the government. So in terms of direct financial remuneration, they're the largest stakeholder, majority stakeholder, and, and have complete control. And in terms of more indirect, we're working with the nation to develop a training program where uh, they get accreditation and work with different institutions to get hired by companies that domicile within the zone, as well as opportunities to work within the zone authority or the for-profit management company itself. So it's not just, you know, create dividends like other projects in Indian country. The goal is to have holistic economic development where people are developing skills to be part of this new economy. Okay, very interesting. And are there any plans to to eventually look towards some sort of physical assets or or, or place of doing business? Kind of how right you you referenced earlier the DIFC, and, and we kind of think of it as this somewhat online jurisdiction. Right, there is still a physical DIFC, yeah. or is is that not part of the your long term plan? Yeah, yeah. So we're definitely exploring physical infrastructure for data mining, sorry for data centers, supercomputers, and and uh, crypto mining. 
that's that's our main focus right now. It's probably the best revenue generating potential there. In Indian country, you get preferential energy rates with the power companies. You usually get economic or, or government rate for those types of projects. Um, so that's sort of what we're looking at in initial stages. There might be some small office space, but that's a little bit more medium and long term. Okay, got it. Yeah, when you mentioned crypto mining, my first thought was, you know, is is there an opportunity here for regulatory arbitrage in terms of maybe building sort of power generation or something that can be sort of sold back to the surrounding area or something like that? Yeah, definitely. There's some definite advantages. Okay. So so you mentioned a little bit earlier about sort of what the governing structure looks like. And as I understand it, there's sort of two entities. There's sort of the direct, there's the zone like as a corporate structure itself, and then there's a zone authority. Yeah. So so what does that authority actually do in terms of oversight and, and what does that relationship look like? Yeah. So the main functions of the zone authority are to be responsible for promulgating regulations and for registering companies. So basically the government end of all this, imagine a secretary of state mixed with a financial services regulator. That's what the zone authority is. And it's managed by this five-person commission, especially in the realm of promulgating regulations, but they delegate to other people for the day-to-day management of the company. You know, we hope to bring on sort of like an equivalent of a secretary of state, which we call a secretary of zone and uh, attorney of zone, kind of like an attorney general, as well as different financial services regulators for the different aspects of the zone as we go through our docket of different regulations. Okay. And so since we're talking about sort of financial services and, and this sort of thing, and there's been a lot of a lot of talk lately about you know, what, what is the SEC and, and other regulatory agencies? What are they going to do about crypto, all of these new kind of digital assets? How does that affect what the zone is doing or, or does that not touch uh, what goes on in, in the zone? So we are affected in the same way that states are. But I think, I, like I mentioned, states have an enormous amount of authority that they just don't go the full nine yards for. And they have significant autonomies when it regards to banking or blue sky laws and and, and, and commercial code, insurance, and what have you. So uh, it does impact, but um, there are federal frameworks for interstate commerce versus interstate commerce, as well as, you know, financially native, and by native, I mean from the jurisdiction, not Native American, charters for different financial institutions. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier that sort of the Dubai International Financial Center, you referenced the um, ZAs in Honduras zones for employment and economic development. I'm curious, sort of how um, these jurisdictions and and maybe any others that were influential, how their legal frameworks or or how specific sort of projects or entities developed sort of under those frameworks have have been sort of influential in in the design of of this zone. Well, I mean, so they've been beneficial in the sense that you can develop a a legal code and you can put it somewhere that it wasn't there before. I, I would say that we're a bit of an, an improvement. This is less of an imposition than, let's say, the Dubai zones were. The Dubai zones are, especially like the DIFC, people often refer to them as, you know, English and, 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 and Welsh common law. But in reality, it's 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 a legal code that was developed by British attorneys. And then they, they defer to baseline English common common law when they conflict or there's there's a disagreement or what have you. But in reality, it's, it's kind of developed from these attorneys, which it's not usually the best way to develop a legal code. What's best and what I like about ULEX is that all of the codes that we have there are sort of emergent over many years, like uh, the stuff from the American Legal Institute, it's based on the restatements of uh, common law. 
which is essentially an aggregation of all common law jurisdictions around the world and the ruling that they have and to create you know, what they call black letter rulings. So instead of you know, create something from scratch, they're looking at what common law precedent has set in these emerging jurisdictions and then using that instead. So that's what I kind of prefer, though, obviously, you know, seeing the success of DIFC, we looked at if you can implement a best class legal code, you can create some really great results. Another sort of element of a lot of these types of jurisdictions is, is that they have uh, built-in dispute resolution mechanisms, right. whether that's some kind of arbitration system or, or even their own sort of separate court structure. Is this zone going to have its own sort of dispute resolution system internally? Right now, it's it's default arbitration. And what you can do as, a, uh, as someone who set up in the zone, you can set up whatever choice of venue you want in your contracts. In fact, this is kind of a benefit. A lot of people talk about how they like you know, uh, the Chancery Court, for instance, you're allowed to use our our legal code and to, you know, set up a company in our zone, but still choose as a choice of venue, the Chancery Court for your disputes. So you get the best of both worlds. You get to the case law of the Chancery Court and you get to use their decision making. Well, at the same time, you get the benefit of having our best in class legal code and how it relates to digital assets. It's almost like sub, it's almost like Delaware is subsidizing their competition. But yes, we do have plans <laughs> yeah, in the medium term to have some sort of arbitral portal and maybe even eventually a physical place. Okay, very interesting. Yeah, and the, oh, the tribe you know, can set up courts to affirm arbitral decisions of whatever sort as well. Okay. Yeah, I, I wanted to follow up and ask, ask on that as well, because that's one of the notable, I think, areas with regard to uh, tribal sovereignty is, is that they can't have their own courts. Right. So I'm wondering how, so would that sort of be perhaps like the first destination for eventual appeals of any kind of decisions Yeah. from arbitration? Okay. So I believe you mentioned earlier that the, the general council of the nation approved the zone for operation in, in February. So how is uh, business in the zone actually going so far? How many companies are incorporated and, and what do predictions for the next couple of years, what do those look like? Yeah, so we've really been focusing on building the administration of the zone authority. Believe it or not, it's it's difficult to form a government body, <laughs> but uh, we're, we're doing pretty good. And, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, we have to build a bureaucracy and we have those administrative codes in place, those bylaws, administrative procedure regulations, the commission set up the basic regulations and, uh, Right now, we're implementing the really basic ones like the digital asset regulation. But now we're getting to the more interesting stuff. In parallel, we're signing LOIs with different companies that are interested in chartering banking institutions within the zone or just setting up normal entities, as well as partnerships with different organizations in, in Web3 that might be interested. But ultimately, we want to make sure that we hire a, uh, a reputable set of regulators before we do, because we don't want to start registering companies yet. I mean... In a sense, this is a startup jurisdiction. It's good to be quick and nimble, as I've talked about a lot. But ultimately, this is a government. You know, you can't you can't bootstrap everything. You need to have credibility and gravitas and experience. So we want to make sure that we hire competent regulators. And for that, we're and for other things, obviously, um, we're conducting a fundraise. And once we close, then we'll be off to the races. Okay, very interesting. And yeah, I, I think that's I think it's actually often an underrated point with, within the sort of special jurisdiction, competitive governments, governance kind of landscape, that the getting that foundation in place is quite important before just opening up with, you know, your your good laws on paper, but you actually have to be able to carry that and execute, execute right. and that and carry it out. Exactly. 
So long term, in terms of intended scope for the project, is the zone sort of, you know, as we're seeing this kind of exodus of tech companies from from San Francisco, right? There's all this talk about going to, and Seattle and other places going to Austin, Miami, other places, while at the same time, remote work is is really kicking off. So how do you see the, the sort of future of the zone sort of fitting into these existing trends? Right. So first and foremost, our goal is to disrupt and unthrone Delaware. So <laughs> we can help in, at least in that aspect and where their, their legal domicile is. There may be some opportunities that the Catawba are uniquely primed for that I can't really get into right now in the longer term that can provide a really good space for as a competitor towards, let's say, Florida or Texas or what have you in terms of actually physically relocating. But for now, purely digital, purely company incorporation and making sure that Delaware actually has, you know, a little bit of heat under their butt for once. Right. Now, you've sort of talked about how sort of primarily right now, in terms of industries of focus, it's it's sort of crypto, it, it's it's financial assets. Yeah. But of course, lots of companies incorporate in, in Delaware. Yeah. So is, is the eventual plan to sort of scale outwards in, in terms of industries of interest and in terms of who the sort of regulatory system sort of set up to incorporate and, and support? Yeah, our goal is to be a general jurisdiction, but like any company, you need to have an initial target market. And we think that the most opportunity is within the Web3 space because not even because of overregulation, but in most cases, it's lack of clarity and definition. So that's a pretty easy lift in terms of that. And there's plenty of growth opportunity on space. So once we you know, really dominate that particular niche, then we're going to scale even further to just the best general jurisdiction for setting up companies remotely. And the Zone Authority has all the authority to do that. It does specifically mention things like digital assets, fintech, insurance, uh, securities, banking, what have you. But it, it makes it clear that that's not the limit of its authority, that this is just things that... Just to be clear, we the zone authority has total authority to make regulations that are consistent with nation's laws and its role and what have you. Okay, got it. Now, I think you also earlier you sort of mentioned Estonia and their their sort of e residency program is particularly interesting because they're doing somewhat similar something similar to what you're doing in terms yeah. of creating an attractive environment. But but the real play right with Estonia is that you know, here is an easy way for. Uh, individuals located outside of the European common market to sort of quickly and easily get access to that sort of very large market. Will this zone be able to sort of do a similar function for access to the U.S. market for people located outside of the U.S. who often have sort of a difficult time getting access uh, to to our market? Absolutely. That's one of the biggest value propositions of this zone. And in fact, I think you know how, oh, I'm sure you do, um, how, how Peter Thiel always asks, you know, what is the one thing that you believe that your colleagues or people in, in this space don't believe? I believe that the United States, especially for this type of zone, is the most competitive place to have a special economic zone rather than outside jurisdictions like in, in Africa or Latin America and what have you, because the United States has such a, a dearth of, of, of capital you know, and, and, and payment rails and investors and human capital and and also just general capital stability. Obviously, people talk all the time about decline of the United States and to a certain extent, that's very real. But at the end of the day, it's one heck of a brand and its business environment is still very strong. 
but it needs to be improved in certain vectors. And what a special economic zone provides is an opportunity to improve upon those vectors where they are needed, but at the same time, having access to all those things I just talked about that make it still one of the most competitive jurisdictions in the world. So having access to U.S. banking and to U.S. investors and markets and what have you, it just makes it horribly, horribly competitive. I mean, that's that's essentially why Delaware is so huge, because there are people around the world that want access to those things, but can't access them easily from their jurisdictions. So the best way to do it is to do it remotely. But now they're going to find that Delaware is not as customer focused as this upstart, you know, in the Carolinas. Yeah, it's uh, taking on the incumbent dinosaur who who enjoys enjoys its rents very much. Right. So I'm wondering if you know we there, there, it seems like there, there's a, a growing possibility of of more zone type based governance being implemented in in the U.S. There's this project. Uh, I, I think it ultimately went nowhere, but there was there there was some talk for a while about a Nevada yeah, that program that information. yeah that would the short version is that it would have basically allowed companies to sort of set up county equivalent governments. Yeah. And right, historically, the U.S. really doesn't have a culture of zone based governments, right? But you have like free trade zones at the airports and, right. and seaports and that's kind of thing. But you know that that's not really that interesting. Well, I mean, recent history. I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the whole history of, of of the country in a long arc is specifically about zone based or or different types of new communities. It's just not as yeah. frequent now. But maybe this yeah. could be a reemergence. Yeah. Do you think that's likely? I potentially. I mean, like, here's the thing. You know, a lot of people now. This sounds like just like a arrogant, like contrarian thing to say is, but uh, I, I used to think that the United States was was doing bad before everyone did. But now I think the opposite. But it's true. I really do. I, you know, I am long term bullish in the United States. I think it's going through some real growing pains right now. But I think there's an opportunity for local and for lack of a better word, decentralized governance picking up the slack where federal and state institutions have not. And these these sovereign governments, these these Native American tribes, they have this opportunity. And I think the goal is, is as long as we don't screw up, which I'm confident that we won't, then we can demonstrate to the world that this can happen and the way forward. And that will serve as a light to help others. So that's our goal. Our goal is to help. And I'm trying to say this without sounding too grandiose. Our goal <laughs> is to reinvigorate American federalism and, and good governance in the states and to show that, that things aren't hopeless, that there is a way forward. And I can't think of a, a better and more strategic route to go than to focus on on frontier technologies that are badly regulated, like Web3. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a that's a really great point. And I think the last couple of years have have shown that it's a hundred percent worth at the very least worth trying new forms of Governance and, and so these new sort of competitive efforts, because it's 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 become sort of very clear that a lot of the existing institutions are, are simply not up to the job, and it's 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 time to build some new ones. And, and think about it from a karma or justice standpoint. Can you think of anything more beautiful than than historically Native Americans have been absolutely screwed over by uh, you know what people often think of as technology or 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 or, or colonialism and what have you. And markets and what have you. That's that's always been the frame. But now you're at the point where tribal governments are saving 
the United States potentially by specifically being good at technology, by being good at markets, by being good at regulation. I can't think of a more exciting form of peaceful and, and prosperous form of justice in karma. So I, it's, I think it could be very beautiful. I agree. And uh, I'm, I'm reminded of that major real estate project that the Squamish Nation is, is developing in Vancouver, where they're basically exempt um, from all of the um, local zoning restrictions. So they're, they're building something, um, a development that's sort of at a scale that you might see in maybe Hong Kong or some other East Asian cities, which I think is really exciting. And I think fits into this broader trend of in sort of North America of, of, of tribes, but but elsewhere in the world of other different subnational groups and, and and other communities that are are, are taking these kind of steps forward okay. to try and build build these new better institutions. And I, I think that's really exciting. Exactly. And not only is there support within these nations for these subnationalities or indigenous groups, but also on a on an international scale with international organizations, NGOs and UN and the like all, you know, very enthusiastically supporting the rights of indigenous self-governance, pretty much all down the stack, their support for this type of project and self-government. So I can't think of a more ideal time in history to be working on this type of project. Yeah. So Joseph, thank you for sharing and teaching us about uh, this new jurisdiction where I think we're all excited to see how things develop over the next few years. Uh, but before we go, is there anything else about the zone that maybe we haven't touched on yet that you would like to share? No, just uh, keep tuned. It's going to get more exciting. You can check out our uh, recent publications in Forbes, Fortune, and this morning, Coindesk. And uh, just make sure to check out the zone. Yeah, because a lot of you guys are nerds, legal nerds. <laughs> uh, so ch- check zoneauthority.io. Check out our legal code and our upcoming regulations. And we're one of the first, in fact, the first government to use Discord for a commenting, pur- uh, commenting period. So go check that out, too. And uh, yeah, thank you for your time. Very cool. Everybody, please check those out. Go join the Discord. (laughs) And thank you. Thank you for being on the show today, Joseph. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We love engaging with our listeners, so please always feel free to reach out. Contact information is listed in the show notes. To find out more about the work of the Charter Cities Institute, please follow us on social media or visit chartercitiesinstitute.org.